0: This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network
1: of Podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy,
1: science and
2: changing our future.
1: Hi, I'm Steve Hetherington, a podcaster, coach and alpaca shepherd from Swansea in the UK. I'm a contributor to the Carbon Almanac Network. I wanted to share this episode of On Being, which is hosted by the amazing Krista Tippett, who brings such respect and curiosity to all of her conversations with her guests. On this occasion, she's speaking with Robin Wall Kimmerer, a botanist and author who will invite you to see things differently, to notice and name things differently, and as a result, invite change. Seeing things differently is the first step to change and I love the way Robin Kimmerer helps us to go beyond Latin binomials to seeing beauty, beyond sustainability where we aim to keep taking and using the earth for our purposes, to reciprocity where we recognize our capacity and responsibility to care for the living world, to love the earth and to know that we are also loved by the earth. Enjoy this introduction to some ideas that are likely to stay with you Why is the world so beautiful?
0: This is a question Robin Wall Kimmerer pursues as a botanist and also as a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, She's the author of the beloved book, Braiding Sweetgrass. She's written, Science polishes the gift of seeing. Indigenous traditions work with gifts of listening and language. An expert in moss, a biologist, she describes mosses as the coral reefs of the forest. She opens a sense of wonder and humility for the intelligence in all kinds of life
3: we are used to naming and imagining as inanimate. I can't think of a single scientific study in the last few decades that has demonstrated that plants or animals are dumber than we think. <laughs> you know, it's always the opposite, right? What we're revealing is the fact that they have a capacity to learn, to have memory. And we're at the edge of a, a wonderful revolution in really understanding the sentience of other beings.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on Being. Robin Wall Kimmerer is a professor of environmental biology at the State University of New York and the founding director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. She works with tribal nations on environmental problem-solving and sustainability. And part of that work is about recovering lineages of knowledge that were made illegal in the policies of tribal assimilation, which did not fully end in the U.S. until the 1970s. Robin Wall Kimmerer's grandfather attended one of the now infamous boarding schools designed to civilize Indian youth, and she only began to learn the Anishinaabe language of her people as an adult. We spoke in 2015. So I'm just so intrigued when I look at the way you introduce yourself. It will often include that you are a citizen from the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, from the Bear Clan, adopted into the Eagles, and i'd love for you to just take us a little bit into that world you're describing that you came from and 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 ask also the the question i always ask um about you know wh- what was the spiritual and religious background of that that world you grew up in of your childhood
3: i'd like to start with the second part of that question mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to grow up in the fields and the woods of upstate New York. I was lucky in that regard, but Disappointed also in that I grew up away from the Potawatomi people, mm-hmm. away from all of our people by virtue of history, the history of removal and, and the um, taking of children to the Indian boarding schools. And so in a sense, the questions that I had about who I was in the world, what the world was like, those are questions that I really wished I'd had a, a cultural elder to ask but I didn't. But yeah. But I had the woods to ask, and there's a way in which just growing up in the in the woods and the fields, um, they really became my doorway into culture. In the absence of human elders, I had plant elders instead. And it sounds like you
0: did not grow up speaking the language of the Potawatomi Nation, which is Anishinaabe. Is that right? Is that how? That's
3: right. Uh huh. Yeah, the language is called Anishinaabe and the Potawatomi language is very close to that.
0: Yeah, I was I was intrigued to see that. Um, just to mention somewhere in your writing that you take part in a Potawatomi language lunchtime class that actually happens in Oklahoma, and you're there via the internet because you know I grew up actually in Potawatomi County in Oklahoma, oh. and having told you that, you know, I never knew or learned anything about what that word meant much less you know the people and the culture
3: it described that is so interesting to live <laughs> in a place that is named that and this is this is the the ways in which our cultures become invisible mm. and the language becomes invisible and through history and um, the reclaiming of that the making culture visible again to to speak the language in even the tiniest amount so that it's almost as if I—it feels like the, you know, the air is waiting to hear this language that had been mm. lost mm. for for so long. Mm. So it delights me that I can be learning an ancient language by completely modern technology. Yes, right. <laughs> sitting at my office, eating lunch, learning Potawatomi grammar. Oh, yeah. So when you said a
0: minute ago that you you spent your childhood and and actually the kind of searching questions of your childhood were somehow somehow find, found expression and 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 the closest that you came to answers in the woods and it seems to me that that's such a wonderful way to to fill out something else you've said before which is that you were born a botanist which is a way to say this right which was the language you got as you entered college um in, at forestry school at State University of New York.
3: Yes, and so there was no question but that I'd study botany in college. It was my passion, still is of course, um, but the botany that I encountered there was so different than the way that I understood plants. It, yeah. You know, plants were reduced to object. They, What was supposedly important about them was the mechanism by which they worked, not what their gifts were, not what their, their capacities were. They were really thought of as objects, whereas I thought of them as, as, as subjects, and that shift in, in worldview was a big hurdle for me in entering the field of science.
0: I mean, one way you've said it is that is that, you know, that science that was asking different questions, and, and you had other questions, other language, and, and other protocol that came from indigenous culture. I mean, there's one place in your writing where you're talking about beauty, and you're talking about, you know, a question you would have, which is why two flowers are beautiful together, And that that question, for example, would violate the division that it's necessary for objectivity. But then you do this wonderful thing where you actually give a scientific analysis of the statement that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, <laughs> which is which would be one of the critiques of a question like that, that it's not really asking a question that is rational or scientific. Do you know what I'm that's, talking about? That I do. Yeah, would I do you exactly. Kind of flesh that out because that's just it's such an interesting juxtaposition of how you actually started to both experience the dissonance between those kinds of questionings and also started to weave them together. I think.
3: Yes, it, it goes back to the story of when I very proudly entered the forestry school as a as an 18 year old, and telling them that the reason that I wanted to study botany was because I wanted to know why asters and goldenrod looked so beautiful together. These are these amazing displays of this bright chrome yellow and deep purple of New England aster, and they... they. They look stunning together, and the two plants so often intermingle rather than living apart from one another, and I wanted to know why that was. I thought that surely in the order and the harmony of the universe, there would be an explanation Hmm. for why they looked so beautiful together, and I was told that that was not science, that if I was interested in beauty, I should go to art school, Right. which was really demoralizing yeah. as a as a freshman but i came to understand that that question wasn't going to be answered by science mm-hmm. that you know science as a way of knowing explicitly sets aside right our our emotions our aesthetic reactions to things we have to analyze them as if they were just pure material and not matter and spirit together and yes as it turns out there's a very good biophysical explanation for why those plants grow together so it's a matter of aesthetics and it's a it's a matter of ecology those complementary colors of purple and gold together being opposites on the on the color wheel they're so vivid they actually attract far more pollinators than that if uh. those two grew apart from one another. So each of those plants benefits by combining its beauty with the beauty of the other. And that's a question that science can address, certainly, um, as well as, as artists. And I just think that why is the world so beautiful is a question that we all ought to be embracing.
0: Yeah. Now, but, you did work for a time at Baosh and after college. I mean, you went into a more traditional scientific endeavor, I wonder, was there kind of a turning point, a day or a moment where where you felt compelled to bring these things together in the way you could, these different ways of knowing and seeing and studying the world?
3: Yes. I think the place that it became most important to me to start to bring these ways back of knowing back together again is when... As a a young PhD botanist, I was invited to a gathering of traditional plant knowledge holders and I was just there to listen. And it was such an amazing experience. Four days of listening to people whose knowledge of the plant world was so much deeper and these than these were And were these
0: elders or these indigenous or indigenous they teachers? They were. Okay.
3: Their education was on the land and with the plants and through the oral tradition. But I just sat there and soaked in this wonderful conversation which interwove mythic knowledge and scientific knowledge into this beautiful cultural natural history. And for me it was absolutely a watershed moment because it made me remember those things that starting to walk the science path had Made me forget or attempted to make me forget, and I just saw that their knowledge was so much more whole and rich and 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 um, nurturing that I wanted to do everything that I could to bring those ways of knowing back into harmony you
0: you said one at one point that you had gotten to the point where you're talking about the names of plants, right? I was teaching the names and ignoring the songs. <laughs> so what what do you mean by that?
3: One of the difficulties of moving in the scientific world is that when we name something, often with a scientific name, right? This name becomes almost an end to inquiry, we sort of say, well, we know it now. We're able to systematize it and put a, a Latin binomial on it. So it's ours. We know what we need to know. But that is only looking, of course, at the morphology of the organism, at the way that it looks. It it ignores all of its relationships. It It's, it's such a mechanical, kind of wooden representation mm. of, of what a plant really is and we reduce them tremendously if we just think about them as as physical elements of the ecosystem
0: and this is On Being. Today I'm with botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer. She writes books that join new scientific and ancient indigenous knowledge, including gathering moss and braiding sweetgrass. So this notion of the earth's animacy, of the animacy of the natural world and, and everything in it, including plants, is very Pivotal to your thinking and to the way you explore the natural world, even scientifically, and draw conclusions also about our relationship to the natural world. So I really want to, you know, delve into that some more. You said that there's a grammar of animacy. (laughs) Talk about that a little
3: bit. Yes. Yes. This comes back to what I think of as the innocent or childlike way of knowing. I should, you know, that's a terrible thing to call it. We say it's an innocent way of knowing, and in fact it's a very worldly and wise way of knowing. And that kind of deep attention that we pay yeah. as as children is something that I cherish, that I think we all can cherish and reclaim, That because attention is that deep, doorway to gratitude, the doorway to wonder, the doorway to reciprocity, and it worries me greatly that today's children can recognize a 100 corporate logos and fewer than 10 plants. Mm -hmm. That means they're not paying attention. In the English language, if we want to speak of that sugar maple or that salamander, the only grammar that we have to do so is to call those beings an it. And if I called my grandmother or the person sitting across the room from me, and it, that would be so rude, right? And we wouldn't tolerate that for members of our own species. But we not only tolerate it, but it's the only way we have in the English language to speak of other beings is as it. In in Potawatomi, the cases that we have are animate and inanimate, and it is impossible in our language to speak of other living beings as its.
0: So living beings would all be animates, all living beings, anything that was alive in the Potawatomi language?
3: Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And inanimate would
0: be what, materials or...
3: You raise a very good question because <laughs> the way that, that again, Western science would give the criteria for what does it mean to be alive is a little different yeah. than you might find in traditional culture where we think of water as alive, as rocks, as alive, alive in different ways, um, but certainly not inanimate. Generally, the inanimate grammar is reserved for those things which humans have created. Okay. Like a table, something like that. But that yes, okay. exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes.
0: And you know, I have to say, and, and I'm sure you know this because I'm sure you get this reaction a lot, especially in scientific circles. It is it's unfamiliar and slightly uncomfortable in Western ears to hear someone refer to plants as persons. It's it's unfamiliar. Um, is does that happen a lot? Is that kind of a common reaction?
3: Sure, sure. Scientists are, are very eager to say that that we oughtn't to personify elements in nature for fear of anthropomorphizing. And when what I mean when I talk about the personhood of all beings, plants included, is not that I am attributing human characteristics to them. Not at all. I'm attributing plant characteristics to plants, just as it would be disrespectful to try and put plants in the same category through the lens of anthropomorphism. I think it's also deeply disrespectful to say that they have no consciousness, no awareness, no beingness at all. And this denial of, of personhood to all other beings is increasingly being refuted by science itself. Yeah, that that's are. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't think of a single scientific study in the last few decades that has demonstrated that plants or animals are dumber than we think. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's always the opposite, right? right? What we're revealing is the fact that they have extraordinary capacities which are so unlike our own but we dismissed them because well, if they don't do it like animals do it then they must not be doing anything yeah. when in fact they're, they're sensing their environment responding to their environment in incredibly sophisticated ways you know the science which is showing that plants have capacity to learn to have memory um, it's really we're at the edge of, a, of a, a wonderful revolution in really understanding the sentience of other beings
0: yeah here's something beautiful that you wrote in your book gathering moss uh, just as an example the rocks are beyond slow, beyond strong, and yet yielding to a soft green breath as powerful as a glacier. The mosses wearing away their surfaces grain by grain, bringing them slowly back to sand. There is an ancient conversation going on between mosses and rocks, poetry to be sure, about light and shadow and the drift of continents. That's <laughs> so Beautiful. And so amazing to think about, to just read those sentences and think about that conversation, as you say.
3: Yes, and it's a conversation that takes place at a pace that we humans, especially we contemporary humans who are rushing about, we can't even grasp the pace at which that conversation takes place. So thinking about plants as persons, indeed thinking about rocks as persons, forces us to shed our idea of the the only pace that we live on is the human pace. And it's, I think, very, very exciting to think about these ways of being which happen on completely different scales and so exciting to think about what we might learn from them. You
0: make such an interesting observation that, you know, the way you walk through the world and immerse yourself in... Moss and plant life. You know, you said you, you become aware that we have some deficits compared to our companion species. I sense that photosynthesis. That you know, we can't even photosynthesize. That this is mm. a quality you covet <laughs> in it's our botanical true. brothers and sisters.
3: <laughs> Take me inside that because I I want to understand. Do. I it. I have photosynthesis envy. Yeah. Um, the the ability to take these non-living elements of the world, air and light and water, and turn them into food that can then be shared with the whole rest of the world, you know, to turn them into medicine that is medicine for people and for trees and for soil, and we cannot even approach the kind of creativity that they have. One thing you say that I'd like to understand better is science polishes the gift of
0: seeing indigenous traditions work with gifts of listening and language so I'd love an example of let's see something you know something where the you know what it, what are the gifts of seeing that science offers and then the gifts of listening and language and how all of that gives you this rounded
3: understanding of something What I mean when I say that science polishes the gift of seeing brings us to an intense kind of attention that science allows us to bring to the natural world. And that kind of attention also includes ways of seeing quite literally through other lenses, right? That we might have the hand lens, the magnifying glass in our hands that allows us to look at that moss with an acuity that the human eye doesn't have, so we see more. The microscope that lets us see the gorgeous architecture by which it's put together, the scientific instrumentation in the laboratory that would allow us to look at the miraculous way that water interacts with cellulose, let's say. That's what I mean by science polishes Mm -hmm. our Mm -hmm. ability to see. It extends our eyes into other realms but we're in many cases looking at the surface and by the surface i mean the material being alone right But in indigenous ways of knowing, we say that we know a thing when we know it not only with our physical senses, with our intellect, but also when we engage our intuitive ways of knowing, of emotional knowledge and spiritual knowledge. And that's really what I mean by listening, by saying that traditional knowledge engages us in listening. And what is the story that that being might share with us if we knew how to listen as well as we know how to see?
0: After a short break, more with Robin Wall Kimmerer. And you can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every show we do on the On Being podcast feed, wherever podcasts are found.
1: On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn how their grantees are helping to address the coronavirus crisis at templeton.org.
0: Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, and she joins scientific and indigenous ways of seeing in her research and in her writing for a broad audience. We're exploring her sense of the intelligence in life we are used to seeing as inanimate. She says that as our knowledge of plant life unfolds, human vocabulary and imaginations must adapt let's talk some more about mosses because you 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 did write this beautiful book about it and you are a bryologist and so that's a um a specialty with even within um plant bi- within biology botany. i've seen you yeah. describe within botany and also i learned that your your work with moss inspired elizabeth gilbert's novel the signature of all things which is about a botanist. Um, I learned so many things from that book. I mean, it's also that I had never thought very deeply about moss, but that moss inhabits nearly every ecosystem on earth. There are over 22,000 species, that mosses have the ability to clone themselves from broken off leaves or torn fragments, that they're integral to the functioning of the forest. I mean, just describe some of the things you've heard (laughs) and understood from
3: moss. Thank you for asking that question because it really gets to this idea how science asks us to learn about organisms. Traditional knowledge asks us to learn from them. Mm -hmm. And when I think about mosses in particular as the most ancient of, of land plants, they have been here for a very long time. They figured out a lot about how to live well on the earth. And for me, I think they're really good storytellers in the way That they live. An example of what I mean by this is in their simplicity, in their power of being small. Mosses become so successful all over the world because they live in these tiny little layers on rocks, on logs, and on trees. They work with the natural forces that lie over every little surface of of the world. Mm. And to me, they are exemplars of not only surviving, but flourishing by working with natural processes. Mosses are superb teachers about living within your means. Hmm.
0: You say they take possession of spaces that are too small. Other plants are excluded from
3: those spaces, but they thrive there. That's right. Mosses have, in the ecological sense very low competitive ability because they're small, because they don't grab resources very efficiently. And so this means that they have to live in the interstices. They have to live Mm -hmm. in places where the dominant competitive plants can't live but the way that they do this is really brings into question the whole um, premise that competition is what really structures biological evolution mm. and biological success because mosses are not good competitors at all. And yet they're the oldest plants on the planet. They have persisted here for 350 million years. They ought to be doing something right here. And one of those somethings, I think, has to do with their ability to cooperate With one another to share the limited resources that they have, to really give more than they take. Mosses build soil, they purify water, they are like the coral reefs of the forest. They make homes for this myriad of all these very cool little invertebrates who live in there. They are just engines of biodiversity. They do all of these things, and yet, you know, they're only a centimeter tall. Another
0: point that is um, implied in how you talk about us acknowledging the animacy of plants is that whenever we use the language of it, whatever we're talking about, um, well, let's say this, we, we don't call anything we love and want, you know, want to protect and would work to protect it. That
3: language distances us. It certainly does, and the language of it which distances, disrespects, and objectifies, I can't help but think is at the root of a, a worldview that allows us to exploit nature. And and by exploit, I mean in a way that really seriously degrades the land and and, and the waters, because in fact, we have to consume, we have to take, we're animals, right? Um, But that to me is different than really rampant exploitation. But this is why I've been thinking a lot about, are there ways to bring this notion of animacy into the English language, hmm. because so many of us that I've talked to about this feel really deeply uncomfortable calling the living world "it," and yet we don't have an alternative other than he or she. And I've been thinking about um, the inspiration that the Anishinaabe language offers in in this way, and and uh, contemplating new pronouns.
0: You you've been playing with uh, one or two, haven't you? With
3: I have. Yeah, I have. So. I've been thinking about the word aki in our language, which refers to land. And though there's a beautiful word, bemadizi aki, which one of my elders kindly shared with me. It means a living being of the earth. But could we be inspired by that little sound at the end of that word, the ki, and use ki as a pronoun, a respectful pronoun inspired by this language as an alternative to he, she or it, mm. so that when I'm tapping my maples in this springtime, I can say we're going to go hang the bucket on key. Ki is giving us maple syrup mm. um this springtime. And so this then of course acknowledges the beingness of of, of that tree. And we don't reduce it it <laughs> to <laughs> right. to an object. It feels so wrong to say that. Right. Um, and I have some reservations um, about using a word inspired from the Anishinaabe language because I don't in any way want to engage in cultural appropriation. Mm. But this word the sound Qi, is, of course, also the word for "who," right? In, oh, in Spanish yes, and in French, yeah, yeah. it turns out that, of course, it's it's a it's an alternate pronunciation for "chi" for life force oh. for life energy. Mm-hmm. I'm finding lots of examples that people are bringing to me um, where this word also means a living being. That's the really earth. interesting. And the yeah, go on. The plural pronoun that i think is is perhaps even more powerful is not one that we need to be inspired by another language because we already have it in english and that is the word kin mm. That's it, the pl- kin, plural of key. Yes, hmm. kin is the plural of key, so that when the geese fly overhead, we can say, kin are flying south hmm. for the winter. Hmm. Um, come back soon. So that every time we speak of the living world, we can embody our relatedness to them.
0: I mean, sustainability is the language we use about is is some language we use about the world we're living into or need to live into and I sense from your writing and especially from your indigenous tradition that sustainability really is not big enough and that it might even be a cop out (laughs) I mean you didn't use that language but um, you're actually talking about a much more generous and expansive vision of relatedness between humans and the natural worlds and
3: what we want to create I am I agree with you that the language of sustainability is pretty limited if something is going to be sustainable its ability to provide for us will not be compromised into the future And that's all a good thing, but at its heart, sustainability, the way we think about it, is embedded in this worldview that we as human beings um, have some ownership over these, what we call resources, um, and that we want the world to be able to continue to keep, that that human beings can keep taking and keep consuming. The notion of reciprocity is really different from that. It's an expansion from that because what it says is that our role as human people is not just to take from the earth. And the role of the earth is not just to provide for our single species. So reciprocity actually kind of broadens this notion to say that not only does the earth sustain us, but that we have the capacity and the responsibility to sustain her in return. So it broadens the notion of what it is to be a human person, not just a consumer. And there's such joy in being able to do that, to have it be a mutual flourishing instead of um, the more narrow definition of, of sustainability so that we can just keep on taking. I keep
0: thinking as I'm reading you and, and now as I'm listening you, to you, I mean, a conversation I've had across the years with Christians who are who are going back to the bible and seeing how a certain certain translations and readings and interpretations especially of that language of genesis about you know human beings being blessed to have dominion what is it to have dom- dominion uh, and subdue uh, the earth was read in a certain way in a certain time, period of time by human beings by industrialists and colonizers and and even missionaries and so there, there is language, and there's a mentality about taking that, that actually seemed to have kind of a religious blessing on it. And now people are reading those same texts differently. Do you ever have those conversations with people? Because I mean, but the tradition you come from would never, ever have read the text that way, <laughs> Just, right? So we I mean, I think culturally we are kind, we are incrementally moving more towards. The worldview that you come
3: from. I think that that's true. Um, and I, th- I think that that longing and the materiality of the need for redefining our relationship with place is being taught to us by the land, isn't it? Um, we've seen that in a way we've been captured by a worldview of dominion, that does not serve our species well in the long term and moreover it doesn't serve all the other beings in creation well at all. Mm-hmm. And so we are attempting a, a a mid-course correction here and I think that's really important to recognize that for most of human history I think the evidence suggests that we have lived well and in balance with the living world and it's to my way of thinking almost an eye blink of of time in human history that we have had a truly adversarial relationship with nature.
0: And so it seems to me that this view that you have of the natural world and our place in it it's you know it, it's a way to think about biodiversity and us as part of that but but reciprocity again takes that a step
3: farther. Right? Yes the idea of of reciprocity of recognizing that we humans do have gifts that we can give in return for all that has been given to us is, I think, um, a really generative and creative way to be a human in the world. And, you know, some of our oldest teachings are saying that, you know, uh, what does it mean to be an educated person? It means that you know what your gift is and how to give it on behalf of the land and, and of the people, just like every single species has its own gift. And if one of those species and the gifts that it carries is missing in biodiversity, the ecosystem is is the ecosystem is is too simple it doesn't work as well when that gift is missing
0: yeah here's here's something you wrote you wrote you talked about golden rods and asters a minute ago and and you said when i am in their presence their beauty asks me for reciprocity to be the complementary color to make something beautiful in response
3: yes and i think of my writing very tangibly as my way of entering into reciprocity with the living world. It's that which I can give. And it comes from my years as a scientist of of deep paying attention to the living world and not only to their names but to their songs. And having heard those songs, I feel a deep responsibility to share them and to see if in some way stories could help people fall in love with the world again.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with botanist and nature writer Robin Wall Kimmerer. You remain a professor of environmental biology. Um, that's right, at SUNY, and you have also created this center for Native peoples in the environment. So you're, you're also. I mean, that's also a gift you're bringing. But that you're you're bringing those, these disciplines into conversation with each other. I wonder, um, what is happening in, in that conversation? How, how is that working? And are there things
3: happening that surprise you? Yes, what we're trying to do at the Center for Native Peoples in the Environment is to bring together the tools of Western science, but to employ them or maybe deploy them in the context of some of the indigenous philosophy and ethical frameworks about um, our relationship to the earth. One of the things that I would um, especially like to highlight about that is I really think of our work as, in a sense, trying to indigenize science education within the academy. Because as a young person, as a student entering into that world and understanding that the indigenous ways of knowing, um, these organic ways of knowing are really absent from academia, um, I think that we can train better scientists, train better environmental professionals when there is a plurality of these ways of knowing, when indigenous knowledge is present in the discussion. So, we have created a, a new minor in Indigenous um, mm-hmm. peoples and the environment so that when our students leave and when our students graduate, they have an awareness of other ways of knowing. They have this glimpse into a, a worldview which is really different from the scientific worldview. So, I think of them as just being stronger and have this ability for. Um, what has been called two eyed seeing seeing the world through both of these lenses mm. and in, in that way have a uh, a bigger tool set for environmental problem solving so much of what we do is environmental scientists if we take a strictly scientific approach we have to exclude values and ethics right because those are not part of the, the scientific method there's good reason for that and and much of the power of the scientific method comes from the rationality and the objectivity but a lot of the problems that we face in terms of sustainability and environment lie at the juncture of nature and culture, right? right. So we, we we can't just rely on a single way of knowing that explicitly excludes values and ethics. That's not going to to move us forward.
0: I know this is a fairly new program, but I I wonder, um, are you seeing results that are interesting um, about where what, how people are applying this or where they're taking it?
3: Well, it's too early to see it. I think in in what you know those those scientific and professional. Metrics, if you will. Right, but what I see is that the students who have become acquainted with these ways of knowing are, are the natural disseminators of these ideas. They tell me that when they are taking their other classes in conservation biology or wildlife ecology or fisheries, they now feel like they have the vocabulary and the perspective to speak up and say, "Well, when we're designing this salmon." Man- management plan, what is the input of native peoples? Um, where how will their traditional knowledge help us do better fisheries management? The invisible knowledge of traditional knowledge has become visible Mm. and it's become part of, of the discourse.
0: Right. In your book uh, *Braiding Sweetgrass*, there's this line: "It came to me while picking beans—the secret of happiness." <laughs> and you mm-hmm. talk about gardening, which is actually something that many people do, and I think more people are doing. Um, so, I mean, that's a very concrete way of illustrating this.
3: It is. Um, in talking with my environment students, they wholeheartedly agree that they love the earth. But when I ask them the question of does the earth love you back, um, there's a great deal of, of hesitation and reluctance and eyes cast down like, oh, <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. Are we even allowed to talk about that? That would mean that the earth had agency and that, the, that I was not an anonymous little um, blip on the landscape, that I was known mm. by my home place. So it, it it's a very challenging notion. But I bring it to the garden and think about the way that when we as human people demonstrate our love for one another, it is in ways that I find very much analogous to the way that the earth takes care of us, is when we love somebody, we put their, their well-being at the top of the list and we want to feed them well, we want to nurture them, we want to teach them, we want to bring beauty into their lives, we want to make them comfortable and safe and healthy. That's how I demonstrate that love in part to my family and that's just what I feel in the garden mm. um, as, as the earth loves us back in beans and corn <laughs> and strawberries <laughs> you know food food could taste bad it could be bland and boring but it isn't there are these wonderful gifts that the the plant beings to my mind have, have shared with us mm. and it's a really liberating idea to think that the earth could love us back but it's also the notion, uh, it opens the, the notion of reciprocity that with that love and regard from the earth comes a real deep responsibility.
0: Yeah, what is it you say? The large framework of that is the renewal of the world for the privilege of breath. Right? That's right, on the edge. Yes. I, I'm thinking of how, for all the... Public debates we have about our relationship with the natural world and whether it's climate change or not or man-made. Um, there's also the reality that very few people living anywhere, you know, don't have some experience of of the natural world changing in ways that they often don't recognize. And in places, all kinds of places with all kinds of political cultures, where I see people just getting together and doing the work that needs to be done, and you know, becoming stewards, you know, however, to, however they justify that, or however they, wherever they fit into the public debates or not, a kind of common denominator is that they have discovered a love for the place they come from, right, and and that, uh-huh. that they share, even that, and they may have these same kinds of political uh, differences that are out there, but. But there's this love of place, and that creates a different world of action. Are there communities you think of when you think of this kind of communal love of place where you see new
3: new models happening? There are many, many examples. I think so many of them are, are rooted in the food movement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really exciting because there is a place where um, reciprocity between people and the land is expressed in food. Mm-hmm. And who doesn't want that? <laughs> it's good for people. It's, it's good f- for land. So I think movements from tree planting to community gardens, farm to school, local, organic, all of these things are just at the right scale yeah. um, because they're, the, the benefits come directly into you and to your family, and the benefits of your relationships to land are manifest right in your community, right in your patch of soil and what you're putting on your plate. Just as the land shares food with us, we share food with each other and then contribute to the flourishing of that place that feeds us.
0: Yeah. I want to read something um, from, I'm sure this is from Braiding Sweetgrass, um, he wrote, we are all bound by a covenant of reciprocity. Plant breath for animal breath, winter and summer, predator and prey, grass and fire, night and day, living and dying. Our elders say that ceremony is the way we can remember to remember. In the dance of the giveaway, remember that the earth is a gift we must pass on just as it came to us. When we forget, the dances we'll need will be for mourning, for the passing of polar bears, the silence of cranes. For the death of rivers and the memory of snow I mean that's that's one of the hard places your this world you straddles brings you to but um, again, so how all these things you you live with and learn how how does they start to shift
3: the way you think about what it means to be human? The passage that you just read and all the experience, I suppose, that, that flows into that has, as I've gotten older, brought me to a really acute sense, not only of the beauty of the world, but the grief that we feel for it, um, for her, uh, for Key. that we can't have an awareness of, of the beauty of the world without also a tremendous awareness of the wounds, you know, that we see the old growth forest and we also see the clear cut see the beautiful mountain and we see it torn open for mountaintop removal and so one of the things that I continue to learn about and need to learn more about is the transformation of love to grief to even stronger love and the interplay of of love and grief that we feel for the world. And how to harness the the power of those related impulses is something that I have had to learn.
0: Robin Wall Kimmerer is the State University of New York Distinguished Teaching Professor at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, and she's founding director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. Her books include Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses, and Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel,
1: Lily Percy, Lauren Dordal, Erin Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zack Rose, Siri Grassley, Colleen Scheck, Christiane Wartell, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold,
0: and Jale Akhavan. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
3: On being... Is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis,
2: Minnesota. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the On Being podcast featuring a conversation with Robin Wall Kimmerer. We'd like to thank Krista Tippett and Colleen Sheck of the On Being Project for letting us share this episode with you. Today's episode was produced by Jen Swanson, alongside Steve Hetherington, Mary Pafford, and Joe Petroni. Special thanks to Steve Hetherington for sharing this episode with us, to our editor, Tanya Marion, and to our founding producer, Jennifer myers Chua. To listen to other shows in the network, like The Carbon Collective, where contributors to The Carbon Almanac share their thoughts and experiences, visit thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts.